Hi everybody, uh, it's Duncan Green on From Poverty to Power and my guest today is Prachi Srivastava from the University of Western Ontario and Prachi is, um, comes to my rescue on a regular basis whenever there's some appalling rant about the joys of private education from The Economist. Prachi comes in and sets everybody straight with things like evidence and facts and stuff that The Economist doesn't seem too interested in. That's a very biased introduction from me. Hi Prachi. Hi, Duncan. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay. So um, I want to talk about um, the private in education, which is your speciality, yours or global authority on this topic. Um, introduce us to how you were saying earlier you came in 18 years ago and what the public-private debate was then compared to what it is now. Right. So I started working on this area 18 years ago. I was a doctoral student way back then. And at the time, we were just entering the um, MDG era, and we had just come out of the EFA, EFA, well, we had also just been entering the EFA era. And we were looking at... What's EFA? Sorry, Education for All. Yeah. I'm going to Thanks. stop you on all acronyms again. Many, many acronyms. Okay. We had just finished the UPE era, another ac- acronym, 1990 Universal Primary Education. Um, and so... At that time, rightfully so, states and governments and academics and all sorts of civil society sectors were looking at expanding access to education and primarily through the state systems. So the focus then was really to see how do we expand places in order to increase enrollment. Um, Of course, there, were, there was also a focus on quality, but, that, but the focus on quality got, I think, suppressed uh, with more um, pressing goals. And there's a number of people who've written about the fact that we had so many different goals that were targeted at, at, in the EFA movement, in the Education for All movement, which kind of got you know, under the radar, went under the radar. And the whole focus really became on universal elementary education through state provision. Bombs on seats, in the words of Naomi Hassan. Yeah, so that's kind of how it's been interpreted. Okay. Um, but at the time, if you talked about the fact that hey, what about the private sector? Or, you know, have we thought about this? It was pretty much dismissed. I mean, I had, I remember as a, as, as a, as a quite a bright-eyed, almost finishing my doctoral student, you know, almost finishing my PhD, my first conference, 2004, and I stood up in this um, plenary session with some very well-known people who are actually pretty good friends now, but at the time I didn't know them very well and they'll remain nameless for the purpose of the podcast. And I got up and I said, hey, what about, you know, have you heard about this new phenomenon called low-fee private schooling? And I mean, I had named it that, so they hadn't heard of the term, but everyone kind of knew that there were these new kinds of schools at the time that were opening up, that were charging fees, that were supposedly targeting lower-income families. And I remember at the time, being, you know, pretty much told to like, sit down, dear, it's okay, it's actually not that important. It's such a small, um, you know, proportion of provision and it's not gonna go anywhere, it's gonna fizzle out. Why are the numbers of poor children in private schools rising? What are the drivers for that? Well, I think the growth of, just generally, the growth of different, uh, a heterogeneity of private schools has happened because of 
dysfunctions in the state sectors. So the parents voting with their feet? It, I mean, yes, where it's possible to do so. So, but we have to be very, you know, we have to be cognizant of which parents we're talking about here. Um, when I coined the term low fee private schools, low wasn't actually meant to be um, kind of a categorical term. In fact, I kind of wish that I had said they were lower fee. Mm -hmm. So the idea was that they were actually lower fee than what we had always thought were private schools, which was these, you know, elite schools charging enormous fees. And, and I operationalized it in such a way that I said, okay, at the elementary level, the school should not be charging more than what a daily wage earner earns in one day. That should be the monthly fee. That, that would be the cutoff of what a low okay. fee school is for my study. So 3% of their income. Yeah. Or sometimes four, sometimes less. Okay. Sometimes less. Yeah. With the ceiling. All yeah. Right. So, so when you actually look at it that way, that's why I said when you asked me this other question about numbers, I'm like, you're asking the wrong person because, because in fact, I think a lot of times, even the studies, the way that they operationalize what they're talking about, uh, when they talk about low cost schools or low fee schools is not clear. Okay. So, so who are we talking about? So the parents that we're talking about are, are, are usually parents in the, the majority of, of, of cases who are, who are more economically secure. This doesn't mean that they are rich, but they're also not the poorest of the poor. They're also not your bottom 25%. Mm. There have been studies done on this that have looked at income distributions and have looked to see what really would these kind of schools, if the parent has to pay direct out of pocket costs, are they accessible to the poorest of the poor? And, and really that's not feasible given what we know and given what the studies show. So yes, state sector schools have not been delivering in, in many, many contexts. Um, I, no one would disagree with that. Um, even people who say, you know, people who are seen as um, kind of proponents of the public sector would always say that there are fundamental problems, which is the reason why where people can, they, can, they have exited. Now those people also tend to be in areas that are more developed. They're either uh, very well-developed peri-urban areas or tend to be in urban areas. Mm -hmm. uh, like for example, in, in the slum areas, in urban slums or in villages that are um, accessible and, and well-developed in, in other ways. Tell me about the pluses and minuses of the, uh, the lower fee provision then. I mean, what, what do they do? What do they fail? Where do they fail? What's your very general view? My very general view is that in a context where the state schools are non-functional and, and, and that really means they either don't have enough teachers or the teachers are not showing up for various reasons. And sometimes we vilify teachers. But part of the problem with this is the teachers in many of these systems are government civil servants. And, and sometimes their absenteeism or their lack of being able to teach is really due to the fact that, oh, they're running the polio campaign. Oh, they're doing the voting. Oh, they're running some mm -hmm. other, you know, they, they kind of, they, they're always kind of roped in to do these other um, duties that they have to do. Um, and the other issue is also looking at what are the conditions under which 
um, teachers working in the government school sector, especially those that are working in rural and far away, hard to reach areas, what are the conditions within which they have to live? It's not just the working conditions, the living conditions. Do they have anywhere to live? Mm. There's this big um, discussion about teacher absenteeism, particularly in rural and hard to reach areas. And, you know, we. I look at it coming it from the other way, and I try to put myself in that teacher's position. Many, many times, these teachers, particularly in the elementary sectors, are young women, um, or they are women who may be married and have children. They tend to be women. And you're, you've posted somebody who's not from the community, who's not from the region, to this far off place where, where are they living? I mean, just the simple basic thing of where am I going to live? Is it safe for me to live here? Where am I, am I gonna, able to bring my family here? Or is there even a primary health care service here to, to, to help? And what ends up happening is that does lead to some attrition issues, right? So in those contexts where the state sector is not able to meet the needs, what my feeling is that the low-fee private sector, if it's being the low-fee private schools in those instances, if it's being managed by local people from the local communities, they are, they are doing a, a service that is not being provided at all. So for example, they will be open and they will try to recruit teachers that are local or who are from the community and who they have more oversight on, so they're able to kind of manage it better. But having said that, there's also quite a bit of attrition in the teacher workforce in the low-fee private sector. So having done field work with um, low-fee private schools and reading some of the other literature that's coming out on this, it's very hard for schools to keep that um, teacher base, low-fee private schools, to keep the teacher base beyond a few years. There's a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. uh, again, for the same reasons, a lot of times they're young women or they're young people who are coming into it with their first jobs. They're, they're, they're vastly underpaid. Um, and so, you know, these are not permanent, and they're not permanent contracts. Are wages lower in these Much, schools? much lower. Sometimes okay. a tenth lower. A tenth of... Yeah. Public sector wages. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes a tenth, sometimes even lower. And I, I read kind of weird stuff about hiring teachers to just read things out from iPads and this kind of stuff. Is that actually becoming quite that sort of downgrading of teacher skills to just parroting something that gets sent to them? Is that becoming a thing or is that just a sort of journalistic so story? I think what's actually more interesting about the low fee private schooling story is the evolution of the sector. Mm -hmm. The on. evolution of the sector has evolved to what I call the second, there's, we're in a second wave of the sector, where initially the research and the work was on the one-off mom-and-pop shops, right? The one-off mom-and-pop school, that local community, the person who opened the school in their local community or in an area that they know that they could you know, work in and, and get enough clients to sustain a school because at the end of the day you need to have people paying for it to run. Um, and that, I think, was what was going on way back at the beginning when I started this work and when other people such as James Tooley, John Harma, you know, these are people that have been working on this for a number of years. And what happened since then is that we saw this evolution where there are chains. And the chains might not be the kinds of chains that immediately come to mind, which are these big corporate chains, you know, funded by external donors, of course. They are there, but there's also a chain and a branching system that happened in local ecosystems of schooling. And what I mean by that is, for example, 
there might be, and I had schools like this in my own study, where there's a low-fee private school that's being run in a particular locality, say it's in an urban slum area, but that school, those owners also own a high-fee school. And they might also be owning a middle-fee school. And this low-fee school is partially being subsidized by that high-fee hmm. school or, and the middle-fee school. Because in the low-fee sector, there's a lot of bargaining that goes on for fees. These are, you know, they might not be the poorest of the poor, but they're certainly not rich clients. So, so there's competition between so, low-fee schools. So there is some level of competition between okay. the schools in areas where there are multiple providers, mm -hmm. of course, right? So again, you have to think about where that would be. But, but that kind of chaining or branching was going on as well. Started, you know, I started seeing that happening maybe like five, seven years into doing this research. And then we got to the, to, to the situation where not only were there corporate chains that were largely maybe internationally run, but also being funded by donors, where there's a lot of kerfuffle about that, as you know. Mm -hmm. DFID in particular was being... We'll get onto that. Task, Don't worry, we'll task, get onto that yeah, next. task on that. But there was also the evolution of a set of ancillary service providers that kind of came into existence partially to serve the low-fee private sector. So what do you mean by ancillary service providers? So, for example, um, low-fee private school owners could not always sustain their operations by fees, right? Because of what I've said, right? There's bargaining, there's mm -hmm. a lot of instability among the client base in terms of who can pay and how regularly they can pay. So where are they going to get financing for their school? So there are these loan companies that have opened up to give loans specifically to school owners. There are loan companies that have opened up to give student loans or household loans specifically for parents, not just at the university higher education level, but at elementary and secondary level to access lower fee schools. So you're getting student debt at elementary and secondary? Wow. But you're also getting these service providers. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about the scripted curriculum, that's another kind of service, ancillary service, okay. that's, that, that has come up, not solely as a result of the low-fee private sector, but it certainly serves the low-fee private sector. There are also companies uh, and products that have come up for school management. Mm -hmm. you know? So for example, how do you manage your workforce? How do you manage your curriculum? What about curriculum delivery? And what about teacher training? Is that basically... Teacher training? Is that a separate system now to state or do they just take well, state, in certain, state training? So in certain countries, um, it's very highly centralized and mm -hmm. in certain countries there are private providers that have opened up for teacher training purposes as well. Okay. Um, but there are also um, pr providers who've opened up who will give a, a suite of services, will help you to train your teachers, will give you management guidance and coaching, will give you a program in terms of how you can monitor your fees and your fee recovery, like financial management for the school, and these are all things that are really kind of serving the sector. So, okay. so in, in more academic terms, for me, this is institutional evolution. Yeah. And it's also, it's its its, its own distinct organizational field for people who love like new institutional um, economics and, yeah. and new institutional sociological theory. For, for me, that's kind of where this is coming. Fascinating. Okay. We're running out of time. So I'm going to ask you one last thing. Um, so in this 
yeah, wonderfully emergent, complex system of you know, new institutions and institutional outliers and sort of new variants and all the rest of it emerging, arrive the aid donors, right? Yeah. Arrive the DFIDs and the World Banks and the others. What have they done with and to this sector? It's a good time to ask that question because there's actually a lot of movement in that um, area. Uh, I, I mentioned DFID just because, I mean, this is a, there, was, there was a public inquiry that was held, so I'm not like, you know, it's no, no, not spilling any beans. Um, there was an inquiry that was done that actually there were uh, some talks that started in 2015 and then an official inquiry that started that was in 2017 and they had a case study on one particular provider um, because they had given to this particular provider a bridge uh, which has been reported, I don't know, around 10 or 20 million pounds. I can't remember now the exact figure. Mm -hmm. And so there was in the public media quite a lot here in the UK, there was a lot of um, discontent about that, that it's the use of public tax, uh, tax pounds um, and public tax monies that are going to fund a for-profit provider. Why mm -hmm. is that? On what evidence and all of this? And, and, and the inquiry was done, and, and it, there was a report that was released, which is publicly available, and they made the comment that DFID should no longer be funding these kinds of chains. Is this ICAI, the Independent Commission on Aid? It was the International Development Committee. Okay, yep. And it was chaired by uh, Stephen Twig. Okay, I'll um, put a link on the blog. Stephen Twig, and okay, he fine. did uh, a really amazing job, actually, in terms of uh, kind of leading that whole mm. inquiry. But um, the report states quite clearly that we should not be funding um, operations like this. That the evidence is is showing clear, you know, concerns um, in terms of equity, in terms of well, there's no quality. Okay. Um, so you think the donors have jumped in too crudely and too much, or at least that inquiry thought that, right? I think that inquiry certainly thought that about DFID. Now, mm -hmm. what happened since is the European Commission in 2018, the European Parliament actually passed a, a resolution to say that uh, monies coming from the Commission should not be going to um fund any core provider of education services that is for profit but does that have any status isn't that just a resolution I mean... well i mean it's a resolution it has status in as much as some bilateral donors um who i've met with have said that they have taken heed of that as well okay so it's taken as a signal mm -hmm. um I think from, from that perspective, it's very important. GPE, the Global Partnership for Education, which is a multilateral fund, um, actually released its private sector strategy this June or July. Um, and they have a very strong comment there as well that says no money from the GPE will be going to fund core providers of education services that are commercially Operated and oriented. So, in the terms so of that, is, that is a real, you know, that yeah. is a real. So, in terms of the hype curve change. in age, we're at that point where it's been hyped, and now there's a lot of counter evidence, and, and we're at a sort of state of disillusion, and then there'll be some compromise where you work out when it's actually fun, a good thing to support and when it's actually not. I mean, is that where we're at? We're at the we're at the the counter the counter blast period. I think, I think at a period where there has been a lot of concerted um, effort um, to bring evidence to light. 
I think I think there has been, you know, not just you know from global civil society, but also from researchers to say, okay, let's actually look at the evidence and let's try and look at it in a way that is a little bit more systematic and let and let's 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 try and bring this in a situation where people are able to engage with that evidence. Okay. And so I think two things have been happening. You, you've had a lot of focus in the last, I would say, and it happened really quickly, like in the last five years, you know, um, a lot of focus being done, uh, put on the fact that we need to review this thoroughly. So, for example, DFID commissioned a review on private schooling, which was led by a number of researchers here in the UK, Laura Day Ashley. Uh, it's a rigorous review on, on education and private schooling in, in developing countries. And that was kind of one of the, the, the first real kind of rigorous reviews of the literature at that time. It came out in 2015. They had done it maybe two years. It probably took them a year or so to do the review. And, and it, it really brought to light, like, hey, here's the evidence base. And you know what? Our evidence base is not that broad. Okay. You know, in the sense when we so, look at, well, it might be broad, but it's not very dense. So props to Diffid for, for doing it and publishing it. Right? Well, they commissioned it and yeah. and yeah, and they had this great team of researchers who mm -hmm. did it and they put it up and, you know, so I'm saying, and that was the first, but there have been others that have come out since Okay. reviews. So I think the literature has helped. And then the change in terms of activism and people kind of seeing differences has helped as well. Okay, well, I want to end there because that is the most wonderful note. Yeah, in these, the, the days we live in, the idea that uh, a combination of activism, research, evidence has changed policy for the, good, for the better is a, is a lovely thing and not something you come across that often. So, Prachi Srivastava, I want to say thank you very much for coming on. Thank and um, I'm sure the conversation will carry on in comments. Yes. I look forward to those. Okay. Thank you so much, Duncan.